Hey there, and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. It is great to be with you all again. My name is Robert. I'm a ministry associate with Ministry to State, also communications director. And here with me, as always, my very good friend and colleague, Will Stockdale, also a ministry associate with Ministry to State. Will, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm doing well. It's great to see you. Great to be with you. We were uh, in each other's presences yesterday at the Potomac Presbytery meeting. So that was only the second Potomac Presbytery meeting I had been to. Good to uh, meet people and see some people that I've mostly just conversed with over Zoom or on the phone. Um, It was good. It it was a good time. And uh, so excited to, well, move along with the ordination process and all that that entails. Yeah, you've got a lot going on with uh with moving ahead in presbytery and ordination and all that fun stuff. Yeah, it is. It was fun to get back together in person with people uh, in presbytery and, and, and talk with folks, you know, especially as sort of the, the young guys on the block uh, getting to sort of hear the wisdom and, and uh, from the folks who have been around the block a few times, if you will. Um, also you talk of the many, many things that you do for ministry of state, you run our commons program, which is our program for interns who come to the city. Last year, uh, you did a number of podcasts with people that you had invited to speak with commons, but we couldn't do commons because of the pandemic. Um, but now this year we're, we're back. Uh, we're doing stuff in person. Last night was the first commons. How did it go? It went well. It went well. It was great to uh, meet a couple interns up here on the Hill and to go back to what you mentioned about last summer, uh, it was, it was really great to get to talk with both those who were working on the Hill, had worked on the Hill, and people who had ministered to those on the Hill. We had, for example, Ann Crager came on who works for Navigators and got to hear her share about her time and working with fellows. Uh, so those are some great episodes that might actually be worth going back and revisiting if you're a staffer, because there's a lot of great wisdom there. I think of like Libby Tidwell or Vijay Menon or uh, Dominique McKay they're just, and, and everybody else, but there's some really great thoughts and insights that I thought people were able to share with Commons. And this year, uh, our theme is wisdom, the, the theme of biblical wisdom. What is it? How does it work? And how does it affect our lives by focusing on Proverbs 1, 1 through 7, which is that introduction to the book of Proverbs. And one of the things that I thought is interesting about biblical wisdom is that biblical wisdom borrows from other traditions around. There are Proverbs that we find in the book of Proverbs that were taken from maybe Egypt, for example, and they were the wording was changed a little. So one of the suggestions is that wisdom is something that is universal to humanity. Uh, wisdom exists not just uh, for Christians, but there's a grain of the universe, to borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis. But what makes Christian wisdom Christian is its orientation in that Christian wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom. And that, that angle, that perspective, that point to which it all goes, what is, why is wisdom important? Well, because we fear the Lord changes, I think, how we approach the daily living of life. So not to get to do, I'm really excited about it. So for those of you who are listening, who have interns, uh, or, uh, know an intern, uh, Visit us uh, at 700 Pennsylvania Avenue Southeast from 6.30 to 8, 8.30 on Tuesday evenings this summer. We've got some great speakers and we'll have food and uh, time of question and answer afterwards. But Robert, while you gave me the chance to talk about commons right there and teed me up and I went way longer than what you were expecting, that is not, in fact, why we're here. We're here to have a conversation about a book. 
Yes, that's right. We are here to talk about um, actually a, a not necessarily a very recent book, but a book that I think is really important and continues to be important for conversations all the time um, about Christians and living in the world um, as we are entering uh, into June, into uh, what has been uh, uh, celebrated in our country now for the last few years as Pride Month. Um, if you are uh, engaging with any of your, the major brands, you, you'll notice um, that there's now sort of a, a, an overwhelming sense that uh, we're celebrating Pride Month now. There's you know products uh, put on the rainbows. Um, there's been uh, the, the sort of viral video that's going around of the Blues Clues clip. Um, which if you haven't seen it yet, you should check it out just to sort of get a sense of what I'm, I'm coming at. But th this question of how do Christians engage with a culture that seems in many ways so post-Christian? Um, and this is a conversation that's been really happening for a long, long time. But a book that really kicked this off was Roger's Benedict Option. And it's sort of been referred to um, in all of these conversations. You know, you'll read a, a, a long form article uh, in any sort of major uh, evangelical or um, Christian public, you know, publication, and you know, inevitably they'll have to drop uh, Dreer's Benedict option because it, it just lives so largely in in the presence uh, and in the mindset of this conversation. And so, I, I will you actually just recently finished the book? You you got around to it and and, and just finished it. Um, and so, I think this would be a good time to sort of have that conversation because we're always debating about how do Christians engage with culture. And in many ways, this book is sort of uh, seminal in that conversation. Yeah. It, I, I'm just now getting around to it. I'm four years behind <laughs> a good friend of mine who got baptized at 26. And he says, uh, and he came to faith later in life. And he's like, you know, I wasn't being willfully negligent. I just didn't know any better. <laughs> when it comes to this book that's kind of i just didn't know any better i mean when, when this i think for a lot of us in christian circles and probably a lot of us who weren't this way uh, so maybe on both sides but I, I will say before the book even came out i heard a ton about it i mean it was it was chatted up like crazy and it was not um just curious of what he was going to say there was a level of that but there was before it even went to press and was released, it, it received a fair amount of hostility in that um, I think my approach was what I, not my approach, what I'd heard from other people is that Dreher's approach to this book was, if you want to be a Christian in 21st century America, you need to retreat to the hills, you need to run to the hills, hide away and save your souls until things get a little better and culture burns itself down. Um, that was what I had heard, I think. Uh, and, and to your topic of everyone responding to the Benedict Option, everyone having something to say about it. I mean, on the cover, we have David Brooks at the New York Times saying the most discussed and most important religious book of the decade. Hmm. So uh, I don't think he's right in that. I don't think that he's correct in that assessment, but it is interesting to hear him say that someone who has a, a, a pretty good pulse on culture in general and uh is, is a very influential writer and thinker very very bright guy uh, russell moore you know encourages christians to read it on the back he would disagrees with more uh, with Dreher on things but he definitely encourages him to encourages christians to read it so that was what i went into uh and that was the approach i took uh, i listened to it on audible actually and then i bought a, a hard copy to have to for my library. Um, 
But I will say I was very shocked and surprised for what I found in the book um, compared to what I had been told about it. Yeah, you know, I, I think a lot of the hostility comes from the fact that it, in many ways it embodies uh, this post-religious right landscape that we live in. Um, so, so much of the energy in sort of conservative Christianity for so long as it relates to engaging with politics and culture had been so driven by uh, the moral majority and the religious right, basically through um, uh, you could make the argument, you know, sort of it peaks in, in sort of Reagan era, but it, it moves all the way through the W presidency. And um, after it just was decided and really understood kind of co- collectively that that approach had not worked, that Christ- that culture had not become more Christian, that politics had not become more Christian. Um, it, it really came down to the question of what, what does engagement look like? Uh, as conservative Christians in what you what you rightly said, sort of 21st century America. And I think uh, there's a lot of a debate and opinion about what that the answer to that question is. And I think what's interesting is that I don't think we've really came, we've really come to a conclusion yet. I mean, I think in many ways, I mean, this book was only written in 2017, but we still live in that environment as people offer um, different ways forward. And I think it's important to note that uh I believe the subtitle of the book is a strategy uh, for Christian living. And it, it's really important to, to, to keep that in mind because I think we need to make sure that we're engaging with Dreher's book and, and Dreher himself on his own terms and in the way that he actually sees himself. And I think you were kind of alluding to that as sort of, you know, there's all this sort of review all these reviews and people saying this is what Dreer's saying in this book and when you sort of take a step back it's important to realize that some of those are straw men some of those aren't really exactly what he's saying and i think even the the, the subtitle itself is a refutation of uh, a lot of his crit- critics which is that i don't think Dreer is saying this is the strategy for christians i think this what he is what he's offering is this could be a way that we move forward and not necessarily in all of its aspects, but in, you know, some of these things I think are important for Christians to take a look at. Um, and I think that's the, the most important thing, but I, I kind of want to get in sort of your reaction as you were reading it, as you were going into it, thinking this is a book about running for the Hills. It's about retreat. It's about giving up. What did you actually find in Dreher's assessment? Yeah. To your point about the subtitle, I think there's something that is supposed, there is a supposed modesty in his prescription to things. I, um, I'll i say this also, I am not familiar with Rod Dreher's writings outside of the Benedict Option. I followed him uh, when there was like the Stop the Steal rally outside the Supreme Court. And I thought that he did, uh, that was on Twitter though. And that was, I thought a pretty helpful um, analysis of every, or, or just even um, um, conveyance of what was, what was occurring at that time. I, I've, I've heard that you've even told me he can be a little more um, bombastic, a little, more intense in some of his journalistic writing. So I don't know about that. I'll just, you know, take the book as the book and um, what he said in there and I'll, I'll, I'll treat it for what it, what I think it is. And I'll maybe say what it's not. And as has already been said, this isn't a retreat to the Hills and live in a monastic community. This is explicitly not a, let's turn back the clock to the good old days. He multiple times pushes against that. This is not a stop working at your big four 
firm or in government um, and, and just turn it little cottage industries. This isn't leave your neighborhood necessarily. Um, the one thing that he does say, I will say, I was going to mention schools. And the one thing he does say is that you need to pull your kids out of public schools. Um, that, that, that is the part of the book I would say was the most clear uh, you must in terms of isolating, in terms of removing from somewhere, that is the the clearest example of him doing that. Other than other than that instance, it doesn't really happen. You can agree, disagree with that. Look at schools. I, I know a lot of parents that are, are I, people our age who are very grateful for parents and how hard it must be right now. Parents are like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my kids. So he's, he's at least touching on something that a lot of parents are feeling right now and in indoctrination. Uh, and to that point, um, he mentions some parents will say, uh, um, you know, I want to send my kids to public school in order to be a witness. And that's one area that I know parents consider that. And, and I think that has to be weighed. And is that, is that worth it? Is that something that can be um, accomplished? In terms of the book, as it flows, he starts out by describing his community in in Port in, in Louisiana, and I almost said Port Fouchon because right out of college, I worked in the oil field for a couple of years, and my first job was in Port Fouchon, Louisiana, which is an hour and a half to two hours south of New Orleans. And and uh, I'm not cursing here explicitly, but it's in Kunas country, uh, <laughs> which is uh, you know you got like different types of people in Louisiana. It's, it's a wonderful state with a rich rich culture and history. And at the very bottom of the state are the Kunasses. And etymologically, it's thought that that came from the Revolutionary War. Perhaps we're not really sure that they wore coonskin caps to fight. So it's not derogatory. It's actually a, my, my, one of my favorite moments working there was when Pookie Collins uh, gave me the, the title registered Kunas. Uh, <laughs> something I'd done. And uh, that meant a lot. I was very pleased with that title. But he mentions this this community of people coming together. And I will say, I really resonate with that because when I was down there, I saw that there was a hurricane that had come through when I was off. And when I went back, or it was a big, big storm. When I come back, a lot of power lines were down. Well, what happens in a community where it takes days for, um, for the utilities companies to get to you, you have to rely on yours and your neighbor's supplies. It is essential to survival that I, whether or not, I, whether or not I can't stand the person next to me, uh, if I have a generator and they don't, and I don't need it, I need to share that with them in order for them to survive and in hopes that, that there may be some reciprocity, there's some selfishness, but the idea at least is that there, there's a relationship there that we, that we have to survive. And so he starts telling that story, but then he goes on and gives kind of an outline, a very fast, very high view of uh, uh, Western history. And as it moves and he, he interacts with um, Alistair McIntyre as one of his, um, uh, interpreters basically of morality and you know i texted a couple of friends i was reading because i was so surprised by what i was hearing and it was what i was listening to in the book and that was so different from what everyone else had said that it was um and look good people disagree on this book so we can we can say that what he pointed one one, one of my friends said was that um he didn't agree with alistair mcintyre's uh, theses about how foregone and how abandoned to traditional Judeo-Christian ethics that the West was. He didn't, he didn't totally buy into that. Um, and I'll say this, if that's the case, you don't have to agree with McIntyre, but if you, if you don't, then of course you'll probably disagree with what, most of what Dreher says. If you do, then the, the, you know, the conclusions follow from the premises. 
largely. They, they follow pretty closely to what he's saying. It's, it's not irrational. It's actually a fairly rational argument. You can disagree with that. Another friend that I was talking to said that his concern was that while we haven't gotten here yet, but the prescriptions, while they are good on paper, can result in um, some very isolationist, dangerous, ten- and I think that's true as well. Um, there can easily become a pietistic quietism that can result where, by that I mean a self-righteous holiness that just keeps our heads down, our mouth shut, but, but we talk, you know, we wouldn't tell our neighbors, we won't, we won't like publicly talk about what we believe, but we'll privately be like, I can't believe those other people are doing that. Um, <laughs> you know, and I think that that can very much be a, a dangerous result. But also his analysis of basically the last thousand years of church history, of Western history is very helpful. Um, and it's, it's broad strokes. But if you do want like a quick overview of kind of intellectual religious changes and breakdown with him dealing with various thinkers. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's good. I mean, it's, it's really good in that regards as a very quick, helpful introduction. So that, that was it. And then, and then we obviously get into his prescriptions to things. Yeah. I mean, I, I all of this, I mean, all of this conversation about how do Christians uh, live in 21st century America is, is essentially an interpretation of what the apostle Peter says as what does it mean to live in exile? I mean, what does that mean? And um, obviously there's a lot of uh, conversation about that because we, you can't do a one-to-one comparison between sort of 2021 America and uh, first century Rome. I mean, it's just, it's a completely different uh, culture and, and, you know, it shares certain things, but it's very different. Um, and we need to keep that in mind. The church, uh, uh, and, you know, when, as Peter's writing is, has not experienced Christendom. It's not experienced institutionalization. Uh, now we live in, a, in a, a culture where the Christianity once was institutionalized and now very much um, the, is, is not and, and feels very uh, exilic in, so many, in many ways. Um, I, I think also you get at the, the hinge, if you will. Uh, of the, the debate around this, this book and around the whole question itself, which is how far gone is American culture in 2021? Um, I think you can arrive at a different perspective uh, based a lot on your media consumption, um, based on your own personal circumstances, where you live, the neighborhood that you're in, your vocation. Um, those things are all going to affect how you perceive sort of the hostility of the, of your surrounding culture and different people will arrive at that. I mean, if you are a conservative Christian living in the suburbs of Dallas, Fort Worth. Yeah. I mean, culture doesn't seem that far gone, right? I mean, things are pretty relatively conservative. And I mean that in a small C sort of way, not a, not a Republican sort of way. Um, uh, if you work in a sort of uh, 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 fields where, uh, liberal orthodoxy hasn't necessarily sort of taken over. Um, yeah, you're, you're not going to feel that. But if you're somebody who lives uh, maybe in New York City, a more urban area, uh, you're in a profession like public education or um, human resources, uh, advertising, things like that, your, per- your perception might change. And so I think it's, imp- it's important to realize that as, as we interact with people in this debate of being really honest and humble about well, where's this person coming from? What is their perspective? Because that's going to influence, I think, so much how you're going to engage uh, with 
Dreher's book and really with this question at large. Um, I want to get now into sort of what you were saying about the prescriptions and the ways that um, they could be applied in sort of a uh, uh, person, a private, uh, a pietistic sort of manner. And so kind of walk us through what those prescriptions are that Dreher gives. Because we've already mentioned what the book is not and the caricatures, I'll give basically a, a summary for Dreher and the prescriptions is, hey, we need to start taking our faith much more seriously. One of the, and, and it, this is one of the things that he criticizes is like, hey, both Republicans are Demo- and Democrats are pretty attached to this um, radical individualism. Uh, liberals are more uh, expressive individualism. Uh, conservatives are going to be more of the economic uh, liberalism and individualism. And so, uh, you know, this isn't like a, um, in terms of prescription, this isn't that like just one side is all bad. I think what he sees is that there is a, there is a, a problem in our Western mindset of, of this, the autonomous individual uh, is fine on their own. And so when it comes to prescriptions, a lot of what you're going to be getting from him is the importance of communal aspects of the faith, communal living, uh, community, uh, communal thinking, communal teaching, uh, communal raising of children. He mentions the point where Hillary Clinton got in a ton of trouble for saying it takes a village to raise a child. And everyone, everyone, you know, got upset at that. And, and look with where we're getting right now with a lot of, uh, invasion of how people can raise their children. It seems like maybe it is a little frightening, but the other side is that um, when children are raised by their parents, yes, making the ultimate decision, but also have the advantage of being around other people, there's a strengthening for the parents and a fortifying for the child and and how they're raised. I mean, if you, if you're in a PCA church and you bring your child to be baptized, the church uh, uh, has to answer a question about, do you, swear to help this family raise this child in this, co- in this covenant community. I mean, that is a, that is an oath we all take in Presbyterian and covenantal churches. Um, so yeah, like kind of what you're getting at, like the hostility to that, that framing, you know, a lot of it depends on what assumptions are you bringing into it, but on the face value of it, it we sort of affirm that, that it does take a community to raise children. Right. And um, with that is the, you know, he offers things like, hey, we need to support Christian-owned businesses. Uh, if there's a Christian who owns a business that is, you know, living ethically and treating their employees, like, hey, that's a good thing. Maybe pay a little more for supporting your brothers and sisters in Christ in those areas. Um, and with the, one of the reasons that the community is so important is that uh, as individuals, we really don't stand a chance on our own. Um, being viewing ourselves, look, Christianity is super unique uh, in its teaching in that uh, we are imputed the righteousness of Christ individually, and we are brought into a body corporately. So there's this really amazing thing where it's not this total individualist thing, but it's not this like, um, lose yourself in the collectivism. Collectivism. Yeah. There's, there's clearly both taught in scripture, um, which is important. And, and it's not it's a tension. It's not easy. It's not, um, it'd be much easier if there were, if, if, if there was just one or the other, 
would make things a lot more simple. It'd be unhealthy. It'd be unbiblical, but at least it'd be clearer. But it reminds me of what G.K. Chesterton says that there's, there's a reason that the lunatic has always been affiliated with the moon because outlines are very clear. Uh, <laughs> the sun, you can't totally stare at it, but it illumines everything else and is a little blurry or around the edges. But um, for Christians, you know, taking our faith more seriously, not on our own, but together with other believers, knowing what we believe, knowing why we believe it, know what its implications are. I saw a guy we both love, just mentioned him again, Derek Rishmawi, who was talking about, he was just got off a Zoom call with uh, some college students discussing the Chalcedonian definitions and talking about the Chalcedonian, Christo- I guess, Christology, and uh, that they really liked it. And what we, would you take our faith seriously? These doctrinal disputes, these church councils, um, they were, they did not come about in times of peace and ease. And people were just bored in their armchairs trying to figure out what do we, how do we really show off our intellectual prowess next? These councils came about because of really fraught conditions. These understandings of who God is, the church, the Trinity, Christ, the Holy Spirit, all of these things came about in times of major trial and disruption. And so they're, they're, they're meant to be impacting in the lives of believers. They're meant, uh, they have a real immediate pay dirt. You hit pay dirt real fast in these, these areas. And so, um, and that's one of the things that I was really encouraged by is his emphasis on taking our faith seriously and knowing what we believe thoroughly and how as Christians, we are distinct, especially from a, a secularistic world, a world that is emphasizing this secular. One, one other thing um, with this, and we'll probably maybe talk about politics now and his political, because I think, especially being in DC, our ministry, people that we minister to, there might be a thought of, hey, if you, Politics can no, is no longer Christian. Uh, politics can't save people. Uh, we need to leave. And Dreher would be like, okay, you're right. Politics can't save anyone. You're right. The dominant of politics is not Christian. No, you don't have to leave your job. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I think is really helpful at Jake Metter, Meter, Metter? Meter. Meter. One of the things he points out is like Dreher says, Christians have got to stop looking to politics for salvation. And Brunig, Elizabeth Brunig, you know, her response is like, well, how dare we abandon these institutions? Uh, we're called to help people. And, and just people were talking past each other, it seems, so much. I've never seen so much misreading in my life. I, I was reading that, that review as I prepared for this episode as well. And I think one thing that Jake Mudor does really well is he puts Roger and Liz Brunig together in dialogue. And going back to what we were saying about... Um, as we approach this question, understanding where people are coming from and, and realizing that Dreher is coming at it essentially as a journalist, anecdotally in some respect, um, and sociologically. And so he's really responding to uh, this, this question, can politics save Christians? Well, he's saying, well, po- Christians need to stop looking to politics and saving us because like, look at what the moral majority did uh, and the religious right. And like, where did that get us? Like, no, nowhere. Like we need to stop doing that. We need to stop looking at politics as a, as a way to save us. Also sort of responding into a kind of um, uh, mainline liberal Christian uh, perspective in, in terms of social gospel and things like that. Whereas Liz Brunig's really in her review of the book is coming at it more as like a political theologian, as somebody who's saying like, how theologically, how do we think about engaging with politics and, and the idea of the common good and 
and, and all that. And like you said, like speaking past each other, uh, I, I don't think that uh, any uh, really nuanced reading of Rod Dreher would come to the conclusion that he's telling Christians, you know, don't vote, don't um, uh, be concerned about electoral politics, don't get involved uh, at your local school board or your local um, city council. I, I think what he's, what he's responding to is this, this priority that conservative Christians have put on, um, you know, what do we got to do to win the presidency? And if we do that, then like everything will be good. Or this idea that we just need, you know, we kind of sort of will do top down uh, reform if we just, if we focus all of our attention on raising um, the right amount of money for the right candidate. And I think what Rod Dreher is trying to say is like, look, that is a very narrow perspective of politics. And if, yeah, if you look at that as the way of salvation, like, yeah, you're going to be in for a rough time. Like that's not going to work. Um, instead, we need a, a much more comprehensive vision of what politics is. And, and I think it's important to see that um, political life as political creatures um, involves a whole lot of stuff beyond voting and involves a whole lot of stuff beyond raising money uh, for campaigns uh, and involves a lot more than door knocking. It involves, uh, you know, neighborhood associations and involves voluntary associations and involves your church and involves your local school district and involves all kinds of things. Um, and certainly uh, uh, an idea that pulling out of politics, including pulling out of those things would not be consistent with what Christians have believed about engagement with the public square for, you know, since its origins. Right. Right. And the, that phrase we've all heard, all politics is local. And I think that would be so that's a very helpful thing for us to remember. And for the people that we serve ministering government, they, um, they work for state representatives and they work for senators who represent local communities and their job is to make sure that they are communicating with them, that they are creating legislation consistent with their district and what can get passed and um, in the House and Senate. And we need to be supportive of these Christians who are up here who are looking to make their communities back home a better place. And for those of us who do live, uh, well, let's say someone who lives in uh, Florida or uh, we can say Wyoming, wherever, to, to make sure that we are getting involved in our our local communities, our local politics. Uh, he he mentions a, a former politician in his book who offers these suggestions for engaging, and one of them is you know uh, get to know your local representative and get to know your local news outlet. If your church is doing something good for the community, um, ask them to come take a look. Ask them to come see, show what the church is doing for the common good. Don't just, again, don't just retreat and leave and say, hey, guys, you're on your own now. Um, but actually say, hey, we want to show you how we think we're, we're helping and loving people um, for good. Uh, so I, I think um, Drew's helpful, I think, in like really drilling down our focus towards what can be done realistically. Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're right in that, you know, people who work in government uh, often see their work as, you know, directly tied to local communities um, all across this country, local communities that look really different from one another. Um, uh, 
a lot of people who represent, uh, you know, urban districts, people who represent rural districts, people who represent, you know, um, uh, mostly communities of of color and, and the communities, a sort of like white working class is, you know, sort of two different demographics that are often sort of, you know, unfortunately pitted against each other. But I think, um, uh, there's a real cynical view of, of politics that everybody in, in DC, that everyone who works in government um, is sort of still part of this uh, uh, totalizing sort of warlike uh, mentality. And that as we minister with people in government, that is just not the case. Um, and I think that uh, we actually have something to learn from them as it relates to how we think about politics, because, you know, if, what Jura is advocating for is what his critics often say. Then the number one thing that we should be telling Christians then is like, Hey, you need to quit your job in politics and like get out of there. Um, but in fact, that's not what we do. We in fact, encourage people uh, into uh, their vocational calling into politics um, and really try to minister to, to folks uh, and counsel them and, and how that, you know, how that vocation works uh, with their faith and what they've called, what they're called to do. And so um yeah, I, I just think that there's a lot we can learn there. And, and, and I think that's really where the direction of, of how we think about politics is going. I mean, I watched a documentary that AEI put on that I've, I've talked about a couple of times on this podcast, I'm sure. And, you know, there were people on that documentary of, you know, all kinds of different political stripes, um, you know, all Orthodox conservative Christians, but, you know, people from uh, more uh, in the uh liberal side and more on the conservative side. And what's interesting is that I think almost everybody is advocating for this more, what your sort of local vision of politics. Um, and, and I just see Dreer as another person in that, that conversation. Um, and, you know, to sort of suggest that, well, what he's actually advocating is, is, is sort of an abandonment, a total retreat. It's just not really what I find uh, often uh, in uh, his actual writings. Um Right. I, he mentions Yuval Levin also, who is, was, is he still at AEI? He's still at AEI. I think so. Yeah. Uh, and in his prescription, his analysis of um, the importance of, of rebuilding in fact, and look, you and I both have said this, we were Americans. We love this country. I, but um, California, uh, Oregon, New York, uh, Colorado, Oklahoma, those are all part of America too. And uh, we want for people to be working together from those different places that make up our country. Um, and so we, we do, you and I do have a hope for national politics. Uh, we do have a hope that it is done well and excellently and that people flourish and, and thrive and that um, the common good is pursued and elevated. For sure. Well, I, I think the way to sort of end this conversation is, you know, again, you know, we're discussing a book that was written in 2017. It's now 2021. That was written during uh, the beginnings of the Trump presidency. We're now in the beginnings of the Biden presidency. And so um, even in those short four years, I mean, a lot has changed. And so I think I kind of want to land the plane here with this question of um, uh, sort of Benedict option revisited four years uh, later. And, you know, what is, uh, or, or, how helpful is his analysis and his diagnosis um, and how might those things help us um, as we continue on? I mean, I, I personally think it's fair to say um, that uh, the overall trajectory 
maybe not in every single case, but the overall trajectory of um, increasing hostility towards Orthodox conservative Christianity um, is rising. I, I think I'm okay saying that. That's not, a, I don't mean that in a sort of an alarmist sort of way. Um, but as we sort of see what's going on, um, uh, a, a example right now, which will be interesting to see what happens, uh, is this uh, physical education teacher in Loudoun County um, who was recently put on leave uh, for uh, essentially refusing to teach transgender ideology uh, in his class. And, um, you know, the overall response uh, of that event and uh, what it means for, you know, you alluded earlier about Christians engaging in things like public school, uh, which tends to sort of be on the forefront of these issues, um, is going to be interesting. And as I, as I see it, um, I think it's fair to say that, that things, you know, the hostility seems to be rising. I also want to <laughs> loop in uh, another one of my favorite writers, which is Russ Douthat, who, who says like, who, who always reminds Christians uh, that uh, our faith is one that um, uh, essentially is driven by unexpected resurrections. And so we have no idea, you know, just because that may be the trajectory right now does not mean that, that it's, that's, it's destined towards that. So we need to keep that in mind. Um, but I think that's an important development I've seen since the Benedict Option, since I first read it in 2017, that seems to be a little bit um, more on the prophetic side. Right, right. Uh, I would say if, if you haven't read the Benedict Option, or if you have, I would say start with or go to The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, which I think would be a wonderful, uh, it provides a wonderful groundwork and understanding for the concern about the things that that uh, that Dreher sees, the, they, they're they're great um, companion books. In fact, Dreher wrote the foreword to the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and I think they're it seems like they're buddies. But yeah, um, you know, also when I look at people who have endorsed the book, these aren't run and hide people. These are people who care and whether you disagree with, again, the premises or the conclusions or the prescriptions, there is a truth that as Christians, we have got to be taking the distinctives of the Christian faith very seriously. And out of that, we can be for things like the common good. Uh, but even in, look, even in 1 Corinthians 12, when it talks about the common good, it's talking about the church first and then it's overflow to the community. There's so we're, we, we, this is not, again, a quietism, pietism, run away, don't love your neighbor at all. There's nothing like that. But what it is the case is a, a deep uh, and alive understanding and appreciation of Christianity and its truth and our doctrines and how those seek to live our lives and how we can shine as salt and light to those around us. For sure. I think that's really well said. Um keeping that, that ordering, uh, that right ordering, uh, keeping, um, uh, mindful of the, the sort of guardrails on either side of this question is always really helpful. And it's, it's your right to go back to scripture. And I think, you know, that's, that's one area where, um, we could all use more time engaging with, as we can, as we approach this conversation, uh, is really mining the, the depths of scripture for this, uh, on this issue. And how we might think about what does it mean to live in exile uh, today? Uh, well, I'm really thankful that you picked up this book and you read it and gave us an opportunity to to relook at it. I mean, I think 
in some ways, it is an incredibly important book. Like I said, you know, in the introduction, it's really, really hard to have a conversation today about how should Christians engage in the public square without at least tipping a hat to Benedict option. I mean, it, it, in many ways, it, it, it is one of the uh, leading voices in this debate, whether you agree with it or not, you have to engage with it. And a final last word, if you don't like the Benedict option or if you love it and can't stand people who don't, we, uh, we, again, it is a prescription. I don't, I mean, I'm not saying I'm going to go full tilt Benedict option or anything, but this, this is an area of freedom of conscience where you're going to have different Christians who see things differently and that's okay. And that is what's real. That's one of the things that's really important is an understanding of difference here and different prescriptions, as long as it's biblically faithful, whether someone wants to take the more Kuyperian and the Tim Keller approach or a more, and I don't even know if Tim Keller and Rob Dre would disagree that much in a lot of things actually. But uh, if you have a different take, like let's be civil. And because unfortunately I think there is a ton of like vitriol that gets spewed uh, as a result of disagreement from both sides on this. And that's just not going to help. Yeah. It's not necessary either. Yeah, uh, bring back the time when uh, book reviews actually reviewed the book in question, and uh, not the straw men that we we erect in order to sort of tear down really quickly uh, for our own uh, self gratification. That seems to be a, a pretty common theme right now, um, and I think we could all do well to engage with much more serious reviews. Um, I think too, if 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 you're an audience. Uh, if you're a listener and you know, you, maybe you've read Benedict option or, you know, you're going to go pick it up, but you'd like to sort of read some reviews. I would recommend, highly recommend, um, taking the time to read both Jake Mudor's review of it in mere orthodoxy and Liz Brunick's, uh, review of it. I think it was in democracy magazine. Um, I think those are the two best reviews I've seen of it. I think engage with it really well. Um, again, you have the conversation, you have the, the question of where are people coming from, but I think it does, those, those two do um, give pretty good uh, reviews of the book. Um, with that, I mean, I think that's a good place to land it. So with that, thank you for uh, listening to the Will and Rob show. As always, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at RD Hassler. Will is at Stockdale Will. Uh, and with that, we'll see you guys again next week.